our Christmas stories are full of traveling and journeying as well. The famous one, which that uh, clip gives a contemporary coloring to, of course, is the famous journey of the Magi, both to Bethlehem and then their journey home. But actually, the journey of the, the, the story of the shepherds has also a key and inescapable element of travel and journey to it. They also are called to travel, maybe not far, maybe two or three miles from their fields and from their sheep to see the child. And an essential part of their story is if they are to encounter God's new beginning is that they must be willing to journey, willing to travel. And the story recounts, just as it does with the Magi, they're traveling to the Christ child and they're returning home. And this morning, I'd like us to think about that. But mostly, I'd like us to think about the moment in between. Both, have, both stories have an extraordinary moment of stillness and worship and attentiveness in the middle. Matthew's story climbs and fades away, falls away. It climbs through the story of the journeying of the, of the Magi, their famous encounter with the star, their scary encounter with Herod. And then that precious moment in the center, the moment of worship. And then the story continues. Now it's not so much the journey of the Magi, though that's referred to. It's the journey of Christ himself that, that fills the picture in the, in the second part of that chapter. The journey of the Magi, the moment of worship, and then the beginning of the mission of the Christ child into the world. The picture here you'll be familiar with, I'm sure, from the cover of a recently published book, um, which coincidentally is still available. Uh, um, <clears throat> actually, it was only since it came out as a book that several aspects of this picture really came home to me. And I'd like you to just pause a moment before it with its extraordinary stillness. A little bit of background and then a bit of stillness. It's a painting by Hershey, whose paintings I've used before. He began his career as a painter in China as a portrait painter for Mao Zedong. He painted icons, if you like, of the chairman during the Cultural Revolution. And some point during that time, he encountered the New Testament and he encountered the stories of Jesus and he began, alongside his paintings of Chairman Mao, he began to paint New Testament pictures. And I think this is one of his earliest. And at some point in that journey, he became a believer and a Christian. And his early paintings were painted on big uh, sheets of cloth and rolled up and taken from village to village uh, as teaching aids, um, as means of evangelism. And I think this is one of his earliest. And I ask you just to sit with it 
for a moment or two and absorb this extraordinary stillness. There's one other thing I'd like you to notice before we go any further. And again, I didn't notice this until it appeared as a cover of my, of my book. The Magi closest to us is actually looking at us, not at the Christ child. And actually, he's beckoning us into the picture. Do you see that? Once you've seen it, uh, it takes a while to, to find it, but you, once you've seen it, you can't miss it again. And the heart of this picture is the moment of worship, the moment in which the Magi bow before Christ and are truly present to him. And it is a moment also in which we are beckoned into the picture and invited to take our place there as well. Let's stay with that first aspect of worship, first of all, the, the bowing of the knee. <clears throat> there are <clears throat> excuse me, uh, three aspects of worship mentioned in this story, and you will have heard them many times. They are in, entirely accurate descriptions of what Matthew is saying here. The bowing of the knee, the offering of our treasures, and the returning by another route. And those are the three dimensions of worship that are highlighted in this story. Let's just pause with each of them just, just very briefly. First of all, the bowing of the knee. The journey has ended. They've arrived at their destination. Matthew records they were filled with exceeding joy. They were bursting with joy and celebration having arrived. But what a strange arrival. No trumpets, no retainers, no palace, no celebration. Uh, an ordinary family gathering. They join a humble, everyday family home happens to have a little toddler. Jesus was perhaps two years or three years old at this time, two years old. The strangest arrival, not what they expected at all, but led by the provision of that star, they know they're in the right place. And the words that Matthew uses indicate not only that they bow in respect, but it is a bowing of worship. And they recognize that they are in the presence of God's special revealing. That's the place we need to reach, each of us this Christmas somehow. We can't stop journeying. We, we will arrive at Christmas. There is no way around that. 
we will wake up and it will be Christmas Day. We can't avoid the journey. The journey happens. The, the question is, will we arrive? The question is, will we find in this journey that moment of arriving? That moment when we too can be perfectly still before the extraordinary mystery and wonder of God's intervention into human history in a child. Look for it and find it this Christmas. Maybe in a carol service, maybe last night was a moment like that for you, maybe this evening, maybe this service even, maybe somewhere at home, maybe with the family, maybe in quietness on your own somewhere. Seek the Christ child this Christmas. See the beckoning hand in that picture, inviting you to be present. Enter the extraordinary stillness that descends when we know we are face to face with the Christ child. It's the longing of our hearts, isn't it? It's actually what we, it's actually what we long for in our Christian life over and over again. And which is often obscured by all the necessary busyness and duties of life. Seek it this Christmas. Secondly, the second aspect of worship which Matthew wants us to discern in this, in this moment is the offering of our treasures. And in familiar words uh, we read, we, we could recite it, how the Magi opened their treasures and an extraordinary scene in this humble home with a, a little child at the center of it. These strange visitors from a far place open up treasures and offer them to the one before them. I've used this picture before. Um, maybe you remember it a year ago. But I, to me, it's a quite wonderful picture. I think what this offering of treasures says to us, first of all, is that worship is costly. Worship is costly. It is stillness and wonder, but it is also a vision which evokes from us the, the offering of our deepest selves and our most precious possessions. More than we could ever have imagined when we set out on the journey. Just take a moment on the figure of the Christ child in the center of this picture. Everyone else in this picture, we just see their heads and shoulders. There's only one figure who is there in his entirety, and that's, that's the baby, that's the child. Wrapped in our traditional phraseology in swaddling clothes, in cloth bands. 
here the artist uncovers that in three ways, which, which are quite lovely, quite beautiful. They are, first of all, simply uh, the, the cloths and bands which in those days were used to wrap newborn babies. So in the first place, those cloths speak of the incarnation and of God's extraordinary humility in entering our world in, in the form of a human baby. They're also grave clothes, and they speak to us also of the one who was born to die, the one whose sacrifice of his, his life is key to his coming into the world. But he also wears it like a toga, throwing it over his head in that extraordinary way. He also wears these bands like, uh, like an emperor, like a lord, like a ruler. And so in just that simple portrayal, the artist, Mantegna, reveals the Christ child to us as the one who is born in simplicity and weakness and vulnerability. The one who will lay down his life and the one who is earth's true Lord. All in that simple representation. This is the one before whom we bow. This is the one before whom our hearts desire that moment of stillness and quiet. What shall we bring? What shall we offer? All kinds of answers have been given to that question across Christian history. Probably in the first place, what we are meant to understand here is that these are the most precious things that can be brought. An interesting parallel between this picture and the Chinese one is the Chinese vase in the, in the middle, which uh, the old man is carrying. It contains the gold, but you can hardly see the gold because the Ming vase at that time was more precious than gold. It is, in fact, a more valuable thing than the gold it contains. And uh, Graham, I don't know if we can quickly go back to the other picture, but you'll see there that he has placed at the center of it uh, a Chinese vase as well. I think he must know this other painting. Um, but it's meant to represent to us the most precious things that we, that we own. Gold, frankincense and myrrh were at that time the most valuable and precious commodities in the Middle East. Traditionally, but I think there's some doubt that this would have been in Matthew's mind, but nonetheless, in, traditionally, it's also been understand, understood that gold speaks of the kingship of Jesus, the incense speaks of his priesthood and of his sacrifice, and the myrrh speaks of his death. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were also the tools in trade of magi and priests in the ancient world. And what they are doing here is bringing not only the most precious things they, they, uh, they own, the most precious things in the world, they are bringing the tools of their trade. And a trade which in the first century was despised, feared, it was superstitious, it was about astrology and the occult, 
something stained and contaminated in Jewish thought, is actually being brought here and we don't know what lay ahead for them, but in some sense made new for them. And of course, these things collectively speak of the offering of ourselves. In our different generations and ages, here we have the three generations of man represented. We also have the three continents of the, of the Middle Ages when this was painted, Europe, Asia, and Africa. All humanity and all of us in our entirety are invited to bring all that we are to the feet of the Christ child. And the third dimension of worship is that interesting phrase, returning by another way. <clears throat> the NIV loses a, a moment here in its translation where it normally says, I think, returning by another route. The word here is the word we would normally translate in English as the way and is the same word used in the New Testament in the early days of the Christian faith, followers of the way. And there's a resonance here. The Magi are returning, not only by another route in order to avoid Herod, but by another way, by the way of Christ. It's just hinted at. Worship has these three dimensions then. Worship is about seeking and in God's grace, finding that place of stillness and quiet where we are attentive and present to God's extraordinary gift in Jesus and where we bow the knee. It is about the offering of ourselves, the richest and most precious things we, we have and are, and it is about willingness to go home, to return to our place by another way, transformed, open to new beginnings. What happened there when they returned? We, we don't know, we hear no more. Um, there is a wonderfully decorated casket in Cologne of all places that uh, supposedly contains the bones and relics of the wise men. You can go and uh, greet them there if you wish. There is also a tomb in Iran that claims to be the tomb of the, of the Magi. But we actually know nothing about their return. T.S. Eliot has an interesting phrase in his famous poem about the, the Magi where he talks about them one of them speaking says, we are no longer at ease in this dispensation. We are no longer at ease. And part of what happens, I think, when we have learned, we have entered into this journey of worship, is a, an a ability no longer to be at ease, to see things in a new way, to have a new worldview, a new outlook. And just finally, we need to recognize, I feel this is really important, that the story for Matthew doesn't end at that point where we traditionally 
stopped reading and where we stopped reading this morning, but his story continues with the flight into Egypt and the painful story of the death of the little boys of Bethlehem. I'd like to leave you with this picture painted by the same artist, Hershey, his depiction of the flight into Egypt. I'd like you to contrast it with the one of the scene of worship, the extraordinary stillness of that other painting. This one we look at, as it were, as if there's been a pane of glass over the painting and that glass has been shattered. It's full of jagged edges. And I think what he is saying is that that moment of peace and truth and wonder and connection is now broken open as the Christ child begins his mission into the world in vulnerability. The stillness has gone, the picture is fragmented as if a sheet of glass had been shattered. But if we return to the first picture, this is the heart of the story. It's a Middle Eastern way of telling a story where the climax of the story is not at the end, but in the middle. This is the climax. This is the meaning. This is the heart. May we find it this Christmas.